0: Thank you for tuning in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Hello and welcome to the program.
1: And what Christ was doing was declaring His Lordship over the powers of darkness. Not just over a patch of dirt, but His Lordship over the whole earth. It's not like the God of Israel is confined to Israel. The God of Israel is the God of the whole earth and Jesus was He.
0: Darkness is a term synonymous with evil and despair the powers of darkness are not really people who you want to be making friends with. When Jesus walked on earth, there was a movement in the spiritual realm and a very real intention to overpower him. What happened when Christ died on the cross? He vanquished the forces of darkness. Let's join Dr. Corbett now for a gripping installment in the darkness series, The Vanquishing of Darkness.
1: Let's pray. Father, as we take this time now in our service of worship, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would still be in worship mode to see Christ, to glorify Christ, to spend this time together and to leave this place worshipping Christ as our wonderful, magnificent, all-glorious Saviour. I pray, Father, no matter what people are going through right now, no matter what they've just been through or perhaps are still going through, that God your word would lift them your word would speak to them, they would hear your voice and that this would not just be words, this would be a spiritual experience for people that might for some be absolutely inexplicable but God, you are the God who does this so Lord I pray, do what you and only you can do now through the preaching of your word, in Jesus' name, Amen. For those who haven't been with us in this uh, relatively short series called the Darkness series, I've been looking at the journey of Christ to the cross. Sometimes it's easy to read scripture and and think that there are some things in scripture that are not necessarily that important, they don't matter. And one of the things I've come to realise as I have grown in my knowledge of God and grown in my knowledge of his word is there is nothing random in the Bible. There's nothing that's not necessary. There are details there that we might think... irrelevant and I've discovered nothing is irrelevant in scripture there's a lot of things the Bible doesn't say because it is as theologians say sufficient knowledge for its purpose and its purpose is that we might come to know God and experience the forgiveness that God offers which is the only way we can come to know God and so scripture is sufficient for us to be able to do that When God called Israel out of Egypt he used Moses for the first part of their journey out of Egypt and the result was that there was a point where Moses became so frustrated with the Israelites, the Hebrews that he lost his cool and as a result of losing his cool he did something he shouldn't have done and as a result of that God said, I entrusted to you, if I paraphrase it, a very high position of leadership and authority to represent me, and you've now betrayed that trust. Therefore, I'm penalising you from going into the very purpose for which you came out of Egypt, which was to enter into the promised land. His successor was Joshua, and God used Joshua with perhaps the only generation of Hebrews that were the most faithful to God. And so we read in the opening book of the Bible, Genesis, that it talks about the the formation of this nation of Israel from one man, Abraham, who had one son, Isaac, or from his one son, Isaac, who through one of his twin boys, Jacob, who had 12 sons, they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And then we come into the second book of the Bible in Exodus and we see that that the the offshoot of that is now an, a small uh, much 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 bigger group of uh, tribes but they're held prisoner in Egypt and treated as slaves and God used Moses to bring them out and when they came out I mentioned about Moses doing the wrong thing and Joshua took over and God told Joshua that you'll enter in and possess this land that I promised to you but here's where you to go first and if we were to have a look on a map, you would see that they crossed over the Jordan River when God parted it, it was dry, very important point, again, not an irrelevant detail. And they went to a place called Jericho, again, not an irrelevant point, which is the middle mark of the whole land of Israel. And it was there that they won an extraordinary victory that on paper, they could n- had no chance of ever winning. But there were spiritual forces at play whom we generally refer to as angels that helped them do that. In fact, the Bible says they were being led and guided by the angel of the Lord. So there was a spiritual interplay with that realm and this physical realm that we all experience. After they defeated Jericho, they came back over the Jordan River into the territory of Bashan this is in Deuteronomy chapter 3, deutero means second, deuteronomy, onomy, the word onomy means law, the second giving of the law because what happened was that generation that Moses got so frustrated with God said in fact not only are you Moses not going to go in but neither are any of these that came out, only their children will and so Moses before he died said to the next generation You need to hear everything that your parents heard and he recited the Ten Commandments and the law to them. That's why it's called Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. But in there Joshua leads the people into Bashan because that's where he was directed by the angelic lead that he had. And curiously Bashan was had a reputation for being an incredibly evil place. I mean there was some weird stuff happening in Bashan, really weird, like occultic witchcraft, wizardry weird. And he was then told to head through Bashan, conquer those forces and they were a a people who were gigantic in size, literally. And finally the last one left was Og, king of Bashan, who the writer in Deuteronomy chapter 3 says was the last of the Rephaim and Rephaim was a breed of giants they were half human not fully human half human in fact the only people God told Israel to completely wipe out man women and child were half humans and here we have King Og whose bed was described as being nine cubits long and four cubits wide and that is a that's a big bloke. But God through spiritual enablement enabled Joshua and his military leaders to be able to defeat this nation. And then they went right up to Mount Hermon which became the northernmost border of Israel. Now I say that to you because ultimately Joshua did what he could and died and left the mopping up to the next generation and they never did, they never did, they let some of the half-breed giant race continue to live, they, they ended up being seduced by the occultic witchcraft magic, and I mean magic not sleight of hand, I mean actual real magic, infiltrate into their thinking and eventually it corrupted them. And then when Jesus comes, now let's skip forward 1400 years. Jesus comes. We read that he went into Jericho. We read that he conquered Jericho by taking the tax collector of Jericho and leading him into salvation. Luke 18 and 19, first few verses of 19. And then we see that right near the right just before he made his way to the cross he went he'd also been to the territory of Bashan and interestingly it's described as the the Decapolis where there were there were demon demonized men in a tomb where it says no chains could hold them so this is a highly still demonized spiritually evil area and Jesus sets this man free and then he takes his disciples up to the town, it's a collection of towns and it became known as the cities of Caesarea Philippi which was right at Mount Hermon where Joshua had been told to go, that was the northernmost border and that's where Jesus asks his disciples who do men say that I am? Some say you are Moses, some say you are Elijah, some say you are Jeremiah, Some say you are one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And that's when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus hears that and knows that his father has just spoken through Peter. Because he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And that's when he says with the backdrop of Mount Hermon and maybe with a wave of the hand pointing to the small plateau halfway up Mount Hermon where there was the temple to Augustus who was considered to be the son of Zeus, the temple to Pan the goat demon god and a host of other idolatrous things at the point of Mount Hermon where nothing grows it's It's barren but it's very rocky and every Israelite knew that's a place you don't mess with. There is nothing but evil and trouble up there. So maybe with a wave of the hand pointing to these rocks Jesus says on this rock I'm going to build my church. And then a few days later he takes Peter, James and John up Mount Hermon and while they are there Moses... And Elijah appeared to Jesus so now clearly he is not Moses and he is not Elijah and it says that as he spoke with them which is symbolic of of Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets telling him now essentially what the father was telling him through what Peter said now you head to the cross now you head to the cross all the law and all the prophets now converge at this point in you everything about the law the animal sacrifices the ceremonies it was always about you the prophets all the prophets all we ever said was about you now go and do what only you can do and at that point the evil forces of darkness are there maybe mocking, maybe scoffing, until this moment when Christ stood there and his Father gave him his glory, just for, just for a moment. And Jesus prays in John 17, Father, I'm coming to you soon, give me back my glory. But at that moment in the transfiguration, Jesus received what he was going to have forever his glory back and it says that out of him shone a phenomenal light out of him not on him out of him and the expression is that he was transfigured and Peter and James and John saw it and it changed their life and we know that because in 1st Peter chapter 1 some 30 something years later Peter could not shake that memory of what he saw on Mount Hermon that night. But the shining of Christ, the revealing of the glory on and through Christ, was not for the sake of Peter, James and John. It was a statement to the powers of darkness. This is who I am. He went right into their territory and he picked a feat. That's Braveheart if you didn't pick the accent. I nailed it. And from that point on, having poked the spiritual bear. The forces of darkness were out to get Christ. I want to focus on what happened when he died and show you that in dying he conquered death. And that's why I'm calling this Vanquishing Darkness. I want I want to subtitle this: How the Means of Christ's Death, How the Means of Christ's Death of Crucifixion was essential to his redemptive mission. I want to show you. That not just because he died that he paid the price for our sin I want to show you that because he was crucified it was essential that he was crucified to pay the price for our sin the way he was crucified the circumstances of his crucifixion the timing of it in human history was all very very significant for those that don't realize Jerusalem was known as the site of the Jebusites they worshipped one of these demon gods not that they were gods but these fallen heavenly beings they fell because they took worship to themselves and the Jebusites worshipped one of them and God put it in the heart of a young teenage boy you've got to conquer that place and it was a mountain a small mountain but a mountain and that young boy's name was David and when he conquered one of the half-breeds Goliath who is known as a, a part of the Anakim which again it's a half breed half human half the product of one of these fallen heavenly creatures when he took Goliath's head off that's a, I should have given you a spoiler alert if you've never read the story of David and Goliath he takes his head off oh I did it again and he takes that head and he goes out from where the battle was, and he goes to the foot of Mount Zion, where the Jebusites were, and he holds it up. And he simply does this. Gur. I think I've pretty much nailed the Aramaic Hebrew accent on that. Gur. And then he goes back, and he's still holding it, fist clenched. I can't. I can't let. Why was he doing that? This is the offspring of the gods you worship look what I did to him next is you and he did he conquered that place and that became Jerusalem so I want you to see the significance of geography and its implications to Christ's journey to the cross because he's gone to Mount Hermon he's come back down he's gone to Jerusalem he's gone just outside of Jerusalem to Bethany just a week before he enters Jerusalem and he raises Lazarus from the dead Now these demonic forces, these evil forces of darkness are now so ticked off because he's showing the world who he is. And what Christ was doing was declaring his lordship over the powers of darkness. Not just over a patch of dirt but his lordship over the whole earth. It's not like the God of Israel is confined to Israel. The God of Israel is the God of the whole earth. And Jesus was he. And I I, I just wish that more Christians would realize Jesus is Lord. The cosmic battle has been won. But the powers of darkness, seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, four days dead. It was back up near Mount Hermon that they received word, come quickly, Lazarus is not well. And it took him four days to walk down there. The powers of darkness had been challenged by Christ and they took steps to do away with Jesus. They manipulated Herod. They manipulated the chief priests, particularly the high priest. They manipulated Pilate and they took out an insurance policy in order to make sure Jesus would be killed by getting into one of his disciples, the compromised one. Let that be a warning to anyone who sees compromise as a game. It says in Luke 23 verses 3 and 4, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. He was their insurance policy. I now want to skip the bit where Jesus had already told his disciples why he was going to Jerusalem and they didn't get it and we know they didn't get it because just after they came down from Mount Hermon where he'd been transfigured along the way Jesus says to them what are you boys talking about remember the discussion what are you boys talking about and one of them sheepishly said we're talking about which one of us is the greatest. He's just told them, we're going to Jerusalem where I'm going to be mistreated by the priests and the rulers and I will be crucified, which was only for Romans to do. Jews did not do that. And so what's their discussion? Yeah, yeah, well, whatever. Who do you reckon is the greatest among us? I think it's personally me. Who do you think? And, and Jesus calls them out and says, you want to be great, be a servant. And... Phew, still didn't get it so now we come to the night before he's betrayed or the night that he was betrayed i should say the last supper we call it where they're arguing about it again if someone tells you i've been diagnosed with a terminal illness i've got two or three days to live yeah can i have your couch well that tv you just bought do you mind if i have that like show some sympathy to see what? and so at the last supper Jesus is telling them, I'm about to be betrayed, I'm about, who is it? Who is it? Yeah, whatever, I still reckon I'm the great. Well, I told you I was the great. And this is going on, meanwhile Jesus takes off his robe, pulls his tunic down to his waist, ties it around here, grabs a towel and there he is washing the poo, the donkey poo, the camel poo, the horse poo off their feet and comes to Peter. (laughs) And Peter must have feet like mine ticklish because he notices <laughs> none of them noticed he says what are you doing I'm washing your feet uh, someone should have done that by the way that's that was custom that someone washed the feet no, none of them were prepared to stoop to do it but Jesus did and that's where Jesus gives them the lesson of leadership it's not about what people do for you it's what you can do for them and may more of our politicians as Ian prayed get that revelation God help us and so we have Jesus about to go out that night he will be whipped he'll be beaten he'll be he'll be hit with sticks he'll be spat at he'll have chunks of his beard pulled out he will have the flesh ripped off his back his face will be so distorted from the 100 soldiers which is part of the cohort of a centurion who hit him that by the time he makes it to the cross the prophet Isaiah foreseeing this event says his back was like a ploughed field, that's Isaiah chapter 52. Man, oh man, but what I want you to see is that something around this, if we could see into the realm that is unseen generally, we would have seen evil spirits, demonic forces, sniggering and laughing and mocking. Even when Christ was taken and crucified and put on the cross... That's what we would have seen if we could have seen of the spiritual realm. King David had a glimpse of this some 1,100 years before it happened. And he wrote Psalm 22. And if you'll forgive me for capitalizing some of the divine pronouns because this is actually who David was referring to. This is Psalm 22. Let me read the first 12 or so verses to you. My God, my God, why have you... Forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? For those who are taking notes, you might want to note Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, where it says this about the ninth hour, that's nine hours from six in the morning. Six in the morning was considered the first hour. There are some young people here, you need to know there actually is a 6 a.m., it would be three in the afternoons. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani?" That is, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" The first line of Psalm 22. David is seeing this 1,100 years before it happens, the next verse. "O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest." gives us a bit of a glimpse into the physical condition of Christ when he was crucified. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But the naked Christ beaten and bruised on every part of his body, hanging there on the cross, feet suspended two, maybe three feet off the ground, not much, just enough for people to be able to walk by, see him and mock him, which was the whole point of the way Romans crucified people. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people, All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. You can hear the mockery of the evil spirits in the spiritual realm which Christ could have heard. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. O you on you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. I told you that the territory of Bashan was known for its evil and wickedness and the forces of darkness are often described in scripture as beasts. So listen to this. David, seeing through the eyes of Christ, be not far from me for trouble is near there is none to help me many bulls encompass me. You will not find that in the gospels because there were no actual physical bulls standing around the cross at Golgotha when Christ was crucified. Many strong bulls of Bashan surround me and we go through the rest of the Psalms and and the Prophets you'll see this description in Amos I think in Micah where he describes the forces of evil as the bulls of Bashan. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So now we're getting a glimpse into the spiritual realm that Christ could see. And I hope you begin to appreciate that when he was on the cross, it wasn't just the physical pain he was bearing. He was bearing the full weight of guilt and shame that sin invites. I am poured out like water. And all of my bones are out of joint my heart is like wax it is melted within my breast why did Christ have to die the way he died I said to you he had to die the way he died for some very good reasons why did he have to die the way he died I want to give you some of the reasons why he had to die the way he died Firstly, I've just finished reading a book, Book, I suppose it's a book, it was written in 318 AD by a 23-year-old Christian by the name of Athanasius. A few years, I referred to Athanasius in the E-news this week, about 10 or 12 years after this, he was, the, he was still a young man, still in his early 30s, and he was the champion of the Nicene Creed and he, he makes these points about why Christ died the way he had to die. Firstly, it had to be a public death so that there was no doubt that he was dead. And he discusses this in his book called On the Incarnation, where he says, why didn't Christ just come quietly without anyone ever knowing about it? I mean, if all he had to do was die for the sins of the world, he could have come. No one could have known about it. He could have hung himself jumped off a cliff, done whatever, dead, done, their sins atoned for. Why did it have to be by crucifixion? Athanasius says this, it had to be public. It had to be public so that there was no doubt he was dead. And God chose the most brutal fighting force in human history who knew what dead looked like to ensure that it happened. Secondly, it had to be an elevated death, As an assault to the prince of the power of the air. If you're taking notes Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 the Apostle Paul talking about the way Christ died says that he conquered, well let me read it, in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And in Ephesians, Paul goes on and says, but Christ and his death conquered the prince of the power of the air. So Athanasius says, that's why Christ was lifted up into the air so that he wasn't just defeating the forces of earth, but the forces of darkness as well. It had to be an elevated death. Thirdly, it had to be a physically indestructible death so that his same body would be revivified in other words brought back to life and Athanasius makes this point why didn't they cremate the body of Christ why wasn't Christ's body destroyed in however he could have died and that's because Athanasius says because God the Lord of glory did not ordain for that to happen because the ultimate purpose was for Christ to be resurrected with his body and it had to be his body And we read in Isaiah that in the process of all that he went through, his body was indestructible. Yes, his bones were out of joint, but they were not broken. They were not broken. Why Christ had to die when he died, and you may already see why. Because Christ had to endure the full brunt of God's wrath in a kind of death that would be both physically, emotionally, socially and psychologically and spiritually punitive. He experienced the full extent of God's wrath. Why he died when he died? It's because the Romans were the only ones who put people to death this way throughout all of human history. The Romans had perfected the most brutal, I mean that word brutal comes from the Romans, talking about the betrayal of Julius Caesar by Brutus. Torturous form of human execution in all of human history. And God ordained, that's when his son would come. We read in John chapter 19, verses 33 and 34, when they came to Jesus, this is the Romans guarding the three people on the crosses, the two thieves either side, the thief either side of Christ and Christ... When they came to Jesus and saw that his body was already, that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out what looked like water and blood. And the Bible says that Christ came at the perfect time in human history. The perfect time. When you think about it, Historians are bending over backwards in all kinds of knots and conniptions to write Christ out of history by referring to this era as the common era, CE. I I never call this 2022 CE, it's always AD, 2022, because uh, anno domini, the year of our Lord, because it refers to the time when Christ died. So, in Galatians chapter 4, here it is, but when the fullness of time, the perfect time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Why else was it the perfect time for Christ to come? Here's why, because the Romans had ensured that there was one language spoken by everybody in the known world. Josiah, what language did everyone speak at that time? Greek, that's right, Josiah, Greek. One language, Greek. Koine Greek. Koine means common common Greek. Not the language of the highfalutings, but the common language. They also had this thing called the Septuagint at that time. At that time, the Septuagint is the Old Testament translated into Greek. Everyone spoke Greek, everyone read Greek, everyone knew Greek. And the Hebrew Scriptures was just finished being translated into Greek. And all, all of the quotations in the New Testament of the Old Testament are from the Septuagint. Septuagint meaning the 70. So it was claimed that 70 people translated. That's where the Sept, sept comes from, Septuagint. The, the Romans enforced this thing under Augustus called Pax Romana. Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Now they had a very clear strategy on how they would deliver peace. You fight with us, you die. Therefore there was peace. The Pax Romana. So the world was largely at peace at that time. There were no major wars that the Romans were fighting at that time when Christ was born. And the Romans had developed a road system. And Kim and I were talking just the other day about going on a road in Rome, just outside of Rome, called the Apian Way. Anyone ever been on the Apian Way? It's made of cobblestones... It was made about um, 60 something BC or so and it's still there. They had a road system that meant that the Romans could be off anywhere in their empire even in the depth of winter and armies didn't usually fight in winter because they couldn't get their horses and carts through but the Romans made sure they could go anywhere and and quell a a rebellion at any moment and Israel had returned to its land and had rebuilt the temple just at that time that Christ came. That's why the timing was essential. So here I just want to talk about what happened when, when Christ died. So this is what we need to understand. When Christ had died, his body had been and, and was perfectly preserved. And I'm going to suggest to you that his body was, was ordained by God... That it would be looked after by one of the wealthiest men in jerusalem because he had a really nice tomb and that was going to be important so not a burial in the ground a tomb where one could walk in and walk out secondly the body of christ was preserved because angels watched over it and we know that there were angels watching over it because on the day of the resurrection At least one of them was sitting on the tombstone, the tomb stone, the the stone that came, you know, a three or four ton rock that he had just pushed aside with his little finger and he was sitting on it cross-legged going, ah, who do you come to see? I mean this thing was chained and waxed around that former opening of the tomb and now here's this angel visible to the women who came and he's been there all along and when Christ maybe, I don't know, knocked on the other side of the rock he said, no problem, here we go, out you come. Angels guarded the body of Christ. Secondly, what happened as a result of Christ dying? In the spiritual realm Christ took the sins of the world into a realm that none of us can go to and from, that's the eternal realm, only God and those he ordains which are his heavenly creatures, can enter in and out of that realm into this realm. But that's where Christ took our sin. So all the sins you are yet to commit, this is really good news because eternity has no beginning, no end. That's that realm. And Christ, when he died on the cross and his spirit left his body, he took all the sins that he was carrying at that moment, went into that realm... And atoned with his blood because of his death on the cross. And so now whatever you've ever done has been forgiven by Christ. Whatever you could do, whatever you will do, whatever sin you will commit has already been forgiven by Christ. How the heck you can stay seated and not jump in a Toyota jump fashion and go, Thank you Jesus, I am bewildered. Well, thank you. But that's where our sins are. I'm reminded of an older lady who was having a a, a time where she just got deeper into God and began to hear from God and she told her rector, um, God, I'm having a wonderful time each each, uh, night before church, now Saturday night, just hearing God speak and and the rector was a bit dubious you know, because God doesn't speak anymore apparently and so he said, oh really, what's God been saying? And and she she told him and he said, well, it could be right, I don't know And, and he said, I'll tell you what, the bishop's coming next Sunday why don't you on Saturday night ask God to tell us, to tell you and then you tell me all the sins the bishop has been committing. She goes well okay (laughs) so come the next Sunday morning she's coming in and the rector says so what did God say? (sighs) She said well I asked him and God said I forgot I forgot God said I forgot now that's That's Bible because the Bible says he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. So when you come to God and you ask him for forgiveness and no matter what you've done, no matter who you've done it with, no matter how many times you've done it, no matter who knows what you've done, you can come to God right now and get a fresh start and be forgiven. And that's where Jesus took all the sins we've committed and all the sins we ever will commit into that eternal realm. And only he was qualified to do it because you had to be sinless to do it. And thirdly, he endured the full extent of the wrath of God the Father. So here's what I want to say to each of us here. And it's not just to us, it's to those we know who we are concerned for. There's only two ways you can deal with the wrath of God, which is what's coming to all people who've sinned. There's only two ways. First way is you personally deal with it. And if you've got sin in your life already, you haven't got a chance. That's the first way. But if you want to take your chances, um, you haven't got a hope. That's the first option. And there really are only two options. Now, that first option sounds like religion. It sounds like Islam. It sounds like Hinduism. It sounds like Buddhism. Where well, it's all about what you do. But here's the second option. It's what I've been describing and it is the big word for today and Josiah could have taught me this word. So I'll get Josiah up now just to explain what this word (laughs) means. Propitionally. That's the other way. You go, ah, propitionally. No clue. What does that mean? It's a word used four or five times in the New Testament and the English translators of the Bible could not think of any English word That explained that Greek word better than propitiation and propitiation is not a word that we have usually in English but it means to bear the wrath of justice to bear the wrath of justice and in this sense it's someone bearing the wrath of justice for someone else so that's where we have this other big word The word atonement. Christ was an atoning sacrifice in our place. So you want to know what Christianity is all about? Christianity is not about what I can do, what I can do, what I can do, that's that's the first option personally, it's propitiously, it's where we say in response if if we die and we stand at the gate of heaven and one of the heavenly creatures comes and says I'm i want to know why should i let you in our our one answer is because of what jesus has done for me and we would probably hear something like this right answer come on in i don't think there'll be a question and answer session at the gate of heaven but if there was it would sound similar to that he is this is jesus the propitiation for our sins he bore the wrath of god on our behalf not just the wrath of god but the wrath that we deserve. And not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So when Christ became our propitiation, he vanquished the forces of darkness because the forces of darkness, they have one mission and that's to keep you from accepting the forgiveness that God offers. That's their one thing. 1 John 3, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. the the leader of the forces of darkness. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Let me read you this quote from Athanasius. He was 23 years of age when he wrote this in 318 AD. Talking about what Christ has done and the effect it is having on people all around the Mediterranean world at that time. And Athanasius lived in North Africa. It is also no small exposure of the weakness and nothingness of demons and idols, he wrote. For it was because they knew their own weakness that the demons were always setting men to fight each other, fearing lest if they ceased from mutual strife, they would turn to attack the demons themselves. For in truth, the disciples of Christ, instead of fighting each other, stand arrayed against demons by their habits and their virtuous actions, by the way they live and the choices they make, and chase these demons away and mock at their captain, the devil. Even in youth, they are chased. Can you imagine that? He says in 3.18, these people who formerly used to have sex like it was eating lollies, now don't because they recognise sex is sacred and sex is only for marriage, And that's that word, chaste. They endure in times of testing and persevere in toils, says Athanasius of these young people. When they are insulted, they are patient. When robbed, they make light of it. And marvellous to relate, they make light even of death itself and are willing to become and have become martyrs of Christ on the Incarnation by Athanasius, section uh, 52. We're going to worship and we're going to talk about the risen Saviour. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to give you an invitation Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for what you've done in dying for us. Not just dying, but taking our sin upon you, going into the spiritual realm where there is no beginning, no end, and leaving our sin there, dealt with forever. God, we thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you so much. Oh God, the immeasurable value of knowing you, having our sins forgiven, having that weight of guilt and shame lifted off us. And now Lord I pray for all those who are joining with us now maybe in this room you've done things you've said things you've done things in secret that you think no one knows but God knows and he's putting his finger on it right now not to bring condemnation but to give you a chance to deal with your sin before you lead this life. Because it's in this life you have to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with. Because our sin needs to go from this life into the realm of eternity. And you can't do it. You can't do it. So now I'm offering the offer of having your sins forgiven. Not because I say so, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus Christ has done is he your propitiation is he the one who's borne the guilt and shame and penalty of your sin that we deserve you are not a million miles away from god you are just one prayer away one prayer away a prayer that's as simple as this yes jesus yes i want your forgiveness that you're offering Yes, I want you to come into my life and help me to live the way I should. Yes, I want you to transform me into the person, the young woman, the young man that you want me to be. Yes, you only need a one-word prayer. Yes, and watch what God does. Now, may we, your people, know the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship with the holy spirit in jesus name and everyone said amen if you have made that life changing decision please come and see us we want to give you a bible we want to give you some things to help you start your journey with christ god bless you we've got teen coffee in the foyer you can
0: also find finding truth matters resources by subscribing to finding truth matters on itunes spotify or soundcloud as we've heard tonight there are only two options for dealing with the wrath of god And when Christ became our propitiation, he vanquished the forces of darkness. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Ligana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.